0: Hello and welcome. The first in a series of podcasts from Copper Consultancy, specialists in communications and engagement for the complex infrastructure and development sectors. My name is Rory Puxley, Account Manager here at Copper, and I will be hosting today's episode on the Chancellor's Autumn Budget. We will be joined by Patrick Trainer, Account Director in our Infrastructure Practice and Public Affairs Specialist here at Copper, and Billy Greening, Account Manager and Conservative Councillor in Horsham in West Sussex. Recorded on Budget Day, we discuss the broad vision laid out by Rishi Sunak on the future direction of the government and whether this represents a return to labour thinking on the economy. Look at the further detail that was given by the Chancellor on levelling up, investment in infrastructure and the surprise absence of announcements on green infrastructure ahead of COP26. We discuss housing and question whether the spending commitments announced will help the government meet its goals on house building following the shelving of planning reforms seen as controversial by some in the Conservative Party. The episode will close with a summing up of Patrick and Billy's winners and losers from this budget. To kick off today's episode, let's discuss the broad vision that was set out at the end of the Chancellor's speech, where Rishi Sunak gave the following ideological vision for the government over the coming years.
1: Do we choose to recognise that government has limits? Government should have limits. If this seems, If this seems a controversial statement to make then I'm all the more glad for saying it because that means it needed saying and it is what we believe. There is a reason we talk about the importance of family, community and personal responsibility. Not because these are an alternative to the market or the state. It's because they are more important than the market or the state. The moments that make life worth living aren't created by government, aren't announced by government, aren't granted by government. They come from us as people, our choices, our sacrifices, our efforts. And we believe people should keep more of the rewards of those efforts.
0: This budget has been wryly labelled by some commentators as the first Labour budget since Alistair Darling's in March 2010 with many of the announcements representing U-turns on key policies of Conservative governments of the past 11 years. Billy, listening to the Chancellor's Budget today as a Conservative councillor from the Tory shires, how do you think this will be received by the party grassroots and your constituents?
2: Thanks, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be here on our first podcast. I'm going to split the question up. I think in the Tory shires, amongst members, they will go along with it. Sunak is popular. And he's still riding the wave that he had last year during the pandemic. With my constituents in my ward in West Sussex in Horsham, it's going to be a bit more difficult sell. Leveling up is something which seems to be aimed and is rightly aimed at dispersing equality of opportunity through parts of the country which were neglected during the 1980s and 1990s. But that's much more difficult to explain to the residents on my doorstep. They will ask me, what does levelling up mean to me? And that's difficult to explain. You have to say that, you know, it's all about the equality of opportunity and sharing the fruits of the UK's labour dispersing that throughout the country. So it's a difficult sell to your traditional Conservative members in the Tory shires, especially when taxes are considerably high and and the state really has its largest role since the 1970s. But our membership is willing to go along with it because they know or they believe, because our Tory membership believes that this is the right plan in order to get the debt under control and our finances fixed.
0: And from your perspective, Patrick, was this the kind of broad vision that the government has arguably lacked under Boris Johnson's leadership, following on from a conference speech with plenty of boosterism, but little content in terms of policy? Will Rushi Sunak be setting the Conservative Party's vision for the future of the UK going into the next election? And how can the opposition respond to this parking of Tory tanks on Labour's lawn?
3: Thanks, Roy. I think there's a a few different elements to that question. Starting first with the Labour response, I, I think everyone probably admits and concedes that the budget today puts the Labour Party in a difficult position. We've seen the Conservative Party announce huge sums of money and spending and some tax rises. As people have said, it looks almost like a budget from the Gordon Brown years rather than from a Conservative administration. I think it's really difficult for Labour to challenge it on the premise that the government should be spending more and should be going higher, especially when we're talking about such large sums of money. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that much to the general public if Labour starts saying, well, we should spend an extra £2 here and there compared to the sums they've already announced. And I also think it's a Labour Party at the moment that's searching for newfound economic credibility. After Jeremy Corbyn years, we've seen kind of Rachel Reeves come in and talk about financial responsibility. So the party are in a really difficult position to kind of respond to kind of what's been announced and also maintain that position as kind of being seen as financially credible. I think at the same time, though, there's an opportunity for the party to focus on delivery. So what we see today and I think over the last few years from the Conservative Party has been some major spending announcements. But there's one thing to announce something and the change is going to happen. And then you've got to necessarily look at the results. So will the Conservatives build the houses that they promised to deliver? Will they be in place by the next election? Will the new infrastructure they promised be in place? Will the green recovery start started to take in place? Will we see kind of new economic jobs and opportunities opening up in different parts of the UK? Will we see the wealth start to transfer kind of out of the south and into different areas of the UK? And I think that is where Labour will focus their battle lines at the next election. It will be on delivery. I think it remains to be seen kind of also where the economy is then. Are we still in a period of growth? Are we going to go through some inflation over the next few years? So whilst I think it's difficult for Labour at this point, you've got to remember the next election could still be kind of a couple of years away. And I think there's a lot that could change in that time. I think your first part of the question about will Rishi Act be setting the agenda is really an interesting question, because to me, there's a clear difference in opinion and almost ideological belief actually between Rishi Sunak and the Prime Minister. I think we saw Rishi Sunak today apologise a number of times for almost delivering the budget that he was doing and talking about kind of the exceptional circumstances he was facing that kind of made him deliver the budget that he did. But then again, you've got Boris Johnson on the other hand, who all throughout his political career has been really keen to spend large sums of money on infrastructure projects, starting off as London mayor. And I think he's kind of continued that vein into his prime ministerial position, including talking, for example, about the bridge to Northern Ireland that's been muted as well in the past. So I think you might see, as well, the difference in opinion between those two continue to play out over the next few years, especially if the economy doesn't perform as well as expected. If inflation does start to get out of control and the cost of living crisis increases, then I think you could really see financial battle lines actually be drawn up between number 10 and number 11 as well.
0: Moving on to infrastructure, the Chancellor fleshed out a little more detail as to exactly what levelling up entails with a number of spending pledges to boost regional infrastructure.
1: Madam Deputy Speaker, infrastructure connects our country, drives productivity and levels up. That's why our national infrastructure strategy invests in economic infrastructure like roads, railways, broadband, and mobile over £130 billion. To connect our towns and cities, we're investing £21 billion on roads and £46 billion on railways. Our integrated rail plan will be published soon, dramatically improving journey times between our towns and cities. And today, We're providing £5.7 billion for London-style transport settlements in Greater Manchester, the Liverpool City region, the Tees Valley, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, West Midlands and the West of England. And we're helping local transport everywhere with 2.6 billion pounds for a long-term pipeline of over 50 local roads upgrades over 5 billion pounds for local roads maintenance enough to fill a million more potholes a year and funding for buses cycling and walking totalling more than 5 billion pounds the prime minister promised an infrastructure revolution this budget delivers an infrastructure revolution
0: patrick Listening to this section of the statement, many outside London will have been encouraged to hear more detail on how the government plans to level up the regions, in their words. But others will have been surprised by the emissions on green infrastructure. We heard about rail, roads, broadband and mobile, but nothing on green initiatives, such as heat pumps and home insulation. With the Energy Efficiency Infrastructure Group estimating that this will cost around £10 billion over the next three years. I figure that the Climate Change Committee, the group that advises the government on climate change policy, have questioned as to exactly how the government will pay for these commitments. Were you surprised by the lack of green funding just ahead of COP26 next week in the budget today?
3: Yeah, I was, Roy. I thought it was a really kind of clear opportunity for the government to go large on its green agenda and to talk up all the things that the UK will be doing in its kind of race to net zero so I think a lot of people tuning in will find that surprising. I think we've seen this week that people do care more and more about the environment. Everyone who is following kind of the debate around the sewage Amendment on Twitter and the backlash actually there was towards Conservative MPs who voted against that amendment. It is an issue that resonates with voters. And I think there is possibility over the next few days that this will play out as a major criticism of the government, that the fact the Chancellor today he seemed to spend more time talking about, about beer and alcohol than he did talking about the environment. So a lot of people would say to that that the climate change is the biggest challenge facing us as a country. It, they'd find that alarming that that was the situation. But I think what underlies it all is the government are a bit nervous at the moment around the cost of net zero and who's going to pay for things. And I think they're still trying to get to grips with that internally before they commit further. So You mentioned heat pumps in your question and there's talk about a £5,000 grant, whether that's enough for people to take out their boiler and to fit in a heat pump, I think it's still open for debate really. So a lot of people will be looking at the support that's available from the government and questioning whether they can afford to make those changes, especially at the moment with a lot of people still struggling financially following the pandemic and the cost of living crisis to then expect them to fork out multiple £1,000 to kind of make their home net zero will be seen as a challenge on the doorstep with voters. So I think that's potentially one reason why we didn't see that come forward today.
0: And Billy, with the focus still on climate change policy, the Chancellor also announced a cut in air passenger duty for domestic flights and raised the duty on long-haul flights. While this could bring a boost to regional airports, some have suggested that this cut in domestic duty is an attempt to shore up the Union as the SNP in, in Scotland Angle towards a second independence referendum. Do you think this change in domestic policy ahead of an international conference on climate change will undermine the UK's leadership at COP26 and hamper the government's pledge to deliver net zero by 2050?
2: I don't think it will completely undermine the leadership of COP26. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that goes. But it is a bit of a surprising move. I suppose it's A political one as well. It's it's supporting these regional airports such as Tees Valley, such as Doncaster, Southampton, Exeter, these sorts of places, and and even to some extent Gatwick. So it's a political decision. I am surprised. This isn't a decision that I would have married up with the aims of COP26. I can see why the Chancellor's done it. Do I instinctively agree with it? No, but I do understand the reasons for doing so. I think on wider climate change policy, there are, there are some very good things within the budget. There's money for hydrogen, there's investment in wind, and I think there's a big winner being nuclear and small nuclear reactors. There is a lot of good stuff in there that means that the air passenger duty cut doesn't undermine our chancellorship, our premiership of COP26. But yes, I I was surprised. I do understand the, the political decisions behind it, especially with Scotland and also the Red Wall seats won in 2019. It will undoubtedly bring investment and keep jobs in those areas. I mean, speaking personally of Gatwick, which is just up the road, significant numbers of my friends and my constituents are employed by the airport, so I truly do understand the importance of it. I think one of the key parts of the budget which was may have been missed is, a, is a, this competition or investment opportunity for sustainable aviation fuel. So it's good to see the government are now taking that seriously. I know that's a long way off, but it I may only taken one or two lines in this 200-page report, but that is the future of aviation. So if the government can now take that seriously and get that right That may well be the future, connecting our airports by a sustainable fuel source. That may be a long way off, but let's hope that today can be a start to that.
3: Can I just come in on this one, Rory, with a couple of kind of thoughts and observations? So, I I think the challenge for the air passenger duty thing is the optics. Again, we've seen at the moment how easy it is for a story to go viral on Twitter. You can argue about kind of the facts behind some of these stories, but You can definitely see opposition groups to the government saying that the government has slashed their passenger duty, making it easier to fly in the week before COP. And to me, that seems like a bad message for a government going into a global conference on climate change that we're hosting. There's something that Billy said there that was really interesting as well around the nuclear industry. And we've seen a government for years not be quite sure on what its policy towards nuclear power is. There's been lots of international security concerns as well in terms of, foreign states investing in the nuclear industry and it feels actually with this budget that the government has made a bit of decision on nuclear and that it is willing to kind of press forward with the size project through kind of creating this new funding mechanism which ultimately means that the state and the taxpayer will be paying for it but i think we did see a bit of certainty there and i think that certainty that we saw for the nuclear industry is actually still lacking in some of the other energy areas so Hydrogen was a bit of a buzzword earlier in this year, but there wasn't really much mention of hydrogen in the actual Chancellor's speech, which probably shows it has slipped down his priorities. And again, I just think across the industry, there's probably a lot of people who want to see a bit more certainty and a bit more commitment before they make kind of the big investment decisions that are made on some of these technologies.
2: Patrick is absolutely right about nuclear. I picked this up at Conservative Party conference at one of the key fringe events I went to that was hosted by Urenco. And it's an idea which I think the Conservative Party have really now brought into, and they have made a commitment to nuclear energy. And it's this idea, if you can imagine it in your minds, where every urban settlement now currently has an electric substation on its periphery. If it's in the future, we could have small nuclear reactors on the edge of every urban settlement. And by talking about nuclear, it makes it real in people's day-to-day lives and if the government can now start to educate people about the possibilities that nuclear energy has it will start to break down the obvious stigma which nuclear has today i think that's one of the big winners thanks both
0: moving on to housing now there was also 24 billion pounds today in the budget for housing with £11.5 billion to build up to 180,000 affordable homes, with brownfield sites being targeted for development. Now, at the start of this month, the government quietly shelved planning reforms that were seen as controversial amongst Conservative backbenchers, local Conservative councillors and the party grassroots. Billy... As a Conservative councillor in Horsham, were you pleased to see the emphasis moving away from Greenfield to Brownfield sites in the Chancellor's speech today, in line with the Prime Minister's speech to conference three weeks ago? And what effect do you think this will have on house building?
2: Yes, I was pleased to see the emphasis change from Green to Brownfield. Whenever I knock on doors, whether it is in Horsham, whether I go and campaign throughout the rest of the country, the thing that people talk about housing the most is they say we should be building on Brownfield sites first. Now, in Horsham, we have limited amount of brownfield land. And I think one of the most encouraging things that the Prime Minister said two weeks ago at Conservative Party conference is that we shouldn't be building houses on greenfield land anymore. And for a place such as Horsham, which has limited protection, we have no greenbelt land. That's an important distinction in planning terms. This is vital for us. If we're to protect our countryside, my voters are environmentally very aware and want to preserve... reason they moved here in the first place. Before the pandemic, more people were moving away from London to Birmingham. And I really want that trend to continue because it gives people in the Midlands and the north of England, the areas we're trying to level up, an opportunity. And it also helps to preserve the quality of life for the people in the southeast where housing development has been too much for too long. So yes, really positive, overheated southeast, levelling up is an opportunity to call cool that down and really get the Midlands engine and the Northern Powerhouse going on the house building front on urban land, which they have more of.
0: Thanks, Billy. And Patrick, do you think that this commitment to house building will help the government reach its target of building 300,000 new houses each year by the middle of this decade, on which it's currently falling short of? And is the 180,000 figure for affordable homes enough to satisfy growing demand in what is an expensive property market?
3: I think on this issue, I think I probably disagree with Billy a bit really. I start off by saying a lot of the announcements we saw today were the government re-announcing existing commitments on housing and actually, if you look into the detail, only a small element of what was announced today was new. We've also seen the government as well who came in and talked about reforming planning system, making it easy to tackle the housing crisis, which is a supply crisis, and then They've had a disappointed by-election result last year, which they've attributed to planning issues. They've seen a bit of a backlash, and now they seem to have moved away from some of their reform on planning. So it's a government that has identified some of the problems to the housing crisis being the planning system, and then looks like they're not really prepared to make the difficult decisions. I think there'll be a lot of young voters who will be disappointed kind of, with what they've seen today, especially in areas in like London, but also areas like Manchester, where the cost of housing is really significant. And there's definitely not just a housing crisis, but there's also affordability crisis as well. A lot of the things announced today was kind of re-announcement of existing funding. The government is obviously short at the moment on its housing target. So is it going to be enough to kind of get them there? And then actually, if you kind of scratch beyond the surface, that they've actually rolled back on some of their commitments. So they're no longer reforming the planning system to the same extent. If they are doing this brownfield plan, what does that mean to kind of other sites? Are they not going to be used? How do you deliver affordable housing and address the shortage of supply if you don't do those things? And then the final point was, it's all well and good kind of talking about people moving to jobs and to areas, but the jobs need to be there first. And the infrastructure, for example, public transport needs to be there.
2: So it's that kind of chicken and the egg point as well.
0: Thanks, Patrick. Billy, is there anything you want to say on that as well, or are you OK there?
2: So I'm just going to come back in on one of Patrick's points, Rory. The reforms by the Secretary of State were universally unpopular in the southeast of England. We've had the Liberal Democrat threat at Chesham and Amersham, but also crucially for the people who vote in local council elections. We've got the independent and green threat as well. My constituents realise okay. the threat that the climate emergency faces, and through things such as biodiversity net gain, and the environmental threats which we have, house building on greenfield sites, is something which we have to take grasp a hold of and say that COVID presents us with a once in a generation opportunity to finally level up other parts of the country. And Patrick is right, it is chicken and egg, but this is where the state can play a leading role and the state has to play a leading role. The state and the government should be saying we're not going to be building as many houses in the southeast anymore. You've had too many. Economic opportunities are going to go to Darlington. They're going to go to Leeds. They're going to go over to Wales. They're going to go to Scotland. They're going to go to the coastal communities which need them as well, which are in, you know, in the southeast too. And that will take pressure off of London and the southeast.
0: Now, finally, Patrick, the perennial question around budget time. Who were the winners and losers from today's budget?
3: So yeah, I think the main winners from the budget will be actually those who drink low-alcohol percentage craft beer who will see the price of their pint go down significantly. So they'll be celebrating with a few drinks tonight, I think. But kind of joking aside, I think the main winners are the mayors of the city regions who have acted as really strong lobbyists for their regions over the last few years, whether it's Andy Burnham in Manchester or Ben Houchen in the Tees region. Or Andy Street in the Midlands, they've all publicly applied a lot of pressure on the government to give them the funding to go with some of the powers that they've got to deliver on their visions for their areas. So Andy Burnham was at Labour Party conference at an event that I went to, basically throwing down the government to the government to give him the funding to build the integrated transport system that he wants to in Manchester. And effectively, he now has the funding now to go and deliver that. So... I think they will see it as a real success for kind of the lobbying work that they've done over the last few years. They've been real champions for their region and investment and they've gone and got it today. So they will see that as a real positive. But I think on the flip side of that, there's obviously depression that comes with that now to deliver. And people will rightly start saying to these mayors, have you delivered on your commitments? You've got the funding. And they can't fall back on the lack of funding as an excuse anymore. You've also got an interesting part That I think that comes out of this as well in terms of who will voters reward if they are successful. So let's take Manchester, for example. If Andy Burnham delivers on his integrated transport plan and improves the quality of life for all those living in the area through a better transport system, do people reward Labour and Andy Burnham at the ballot box at the next election? Or do they see it as a success of the government's levelling up agenda? Or will they both benefit from it and Andy Burnham will sail as he normally does through the next election or whoever stands for Labour in that mayoral election, but the Conservatives will benefit nationally for delivering on levelling up. So I think that throws open a really interesting question, which I don't think we'll see the answer to that for a few years. I think the second winner today actually was Rachel Reeves. I think she had almost an impossible job. It's People often say it's the hardest job in politics to respond to a budget, let alone having that job. With a short notice with Keir Starmer testing positive for COVID earlier today, she did a really good job today at responding. We've discussed how it's a difficult budget for Labour to respond to, but she put in a very credible and strong performance. And I think her stock will have gone up not just within the Labour Party, but across the country, really. So I think it will be seen as a good day for her.
0: Thanks, Patrick. And Billy, who do you think will be most pleased by the Chancellor's spending announcements in the budget? And who will have been left disappointed?
2: I think I've broken it down into three sections. If I go with my winners first, I think the big winner, as has been the case for a while with the government, is Ben Houchen, Tees Valley Mayor. I think the investment that the North East is seeing, he really is the flagship for levelling up and the announcement specifically of the investment for jobs and job creation through wind power that we're seeing in the... Northeast, the announcement of the Freeport, Tees Valley is undoubtedly a winner. My second point would be around net zero. I think that is genuinely a winner. I think if you read the detail of the energy policies within the budget, there is a lot in there within the nuclear industry, within the wind, within hydrogen. I think there is a big opportunity there now for the UK to become a beacon within Western Europe and the G7 to lead the way for decarbonisation net zero and i really hope that at the start of cop we can see that the losers nick clegg to bring it back to a name from a couple of years ago the former deputy prime minister and now at facebook nick clegg and david cameron the long term economic plan of 2010 to 2015 that they presided over and the conservatives then won a majority in 2015 over is now finished the period of austerity which we which we went through at that stage has now completely dissipated. we have now back to labor levels of spending. 2010, as we wrapped it right back to the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast, talking about this really is a budget that Alistair Darling or Gordon Brown could have delivered. And maybe the chancellor has watched the BBC One Blair and Brown years documentary. I'm sure he has. So I think the liberal wing of the conservative party, and by that I mean financially liberal, the David Cameron, George Osborne conservatives, the 2010 intake were probably the losers Mr Sunak isn't tied to the coalition he was elected into William Hague's former seat in 2015 so he doesn't have the legacy of the coalition so he is a loser if we remember if we remember that David Cameron and Nick Clegg you know their economic policies And my third one, to to bring it back to Patrick's point to end on a laugh, would be port drinkers. And I say this as a a Conservative, one of the first ever Conservative events I went to as a young Conservative was port and policy, where you used to drink port and discuss policy and it used to get more and more extravagant as you you got on with the evening. And port drinkers are going to suffer under under the budget, obviously, because it's a higher strength alcohol and you're going to have to pay more for it. So I think... Those who uh, want to drink lighter alcohol, the big winners, but port drinkers, of which many conservative voters are, this won't be a popular policy for them.
3: The second point I think is interesting that you've got a conservative government who essentially aren't prepared to almost criticise what's gone before them, which was also a conservative government. You had Rishi Act today talk multiple times about the biggest investment in certain areas that we've seen in the last decade. And I think I, I was sat at home watching the budget thinking, oh, God a minute, you, you, you've been the government for the last 10, 11 years. So I think it's interesting, and we've seen it throughout kind of the Bryce Johnson administration, almost an attempt to distance himself from a previous Conservative government administration. And so he's almost kind of ripping up the political rulebook, to be honest, the way he's effectively able to do that and talk about it as if he's a completely new government, as if it was almost a different party who was in charge then and kind of expecting voters to go along with that. So I find that really interesting. If I could just add as well one loser, I think obviously for Keir Starmer, who is trying to build his profile at the moment to get his name out there, it was really unfortunate timing for him that he happened to test positive for COVID today and therefore kind of missed the opportunity to respond to the budget and to get the Labour Party's position. So just very unfortunate kind of timing for him.
2: I think Patrick's absolutely right. I mean, one note I made here as we were talking, this could have been a speech that possibly a second term of Ed Miliband's prime ministership would have given. And it really was an episode of Back to the Future today when Ed Miliband was once again taking prime minister's questions. And it really did bring your brain back to 2011 to 2015 when he was at the dispatch box every week combating David Cameron. And it was a speech that his chancellors, Ed Balls or whoever it might have been, Could have given because a lot of the policies in there were big statist, heavy on taxation, heavy on government spending that six, seven years ago the Conservative Party would never, ever have dreamed of. Patrick's absolutely right. You see the sure start centres that have recently been forced to close being reinvented in the budget now. One point where I would disagree, there is one rule within the Conservative Party that is spoken about, and that rule is that there are no rules within the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is the most successful political party in the world because it is able to reinvent itself over and over and over again. And just like Doctor Who, it can regenerate, or just like James Bond, it can regenerate itself into whatever or whoever it has to be to succeed. That
0: brings us to the end of this episode. My thanks to Patrick and Billy for their time discussing the autumn budget.
1: Thanks, Rory. Cheers, Rory. Cheers, Billy. This budget builds a stronger economy for the British people, and I commend it to the House.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Copper Consultancy on the autumn budget. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find out more about what we do here at Copper, please visit our website at copperconsultancy.com where you can sign up to our newsletter Copper Wire and follow us on LinkedIn at Copper Consultancy and on Twitter at Copper Consult.